Hi, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Elevate Database Show, number 14. Yay. Hello. <laughs> we are here to explore current topics in data visualization, share our creative inspiration, and the tools and techniques that we are experimenting with as practicing information designers. Today, we are talking about ethical considerations in DataViz. We want to do good, right, correct work in our, um, in our field, but what does that exactly mean? How do we do it? I'm Ali Torben. We also have Will Chase and Gabrielle Marit here today. And before we jump in, this show is supported by the members of the Elevate DataViz Learning Community who get the opportunity to watch and ask questions live. If you would like to do that and you want to level up your DataViz skills in a very supportive community, you can check out elevatedataviz.com. Okay, now let's get to ethical DataViz. I think first we should probably define ethical. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a big word. And um, I, I think it's easier sometimes to think about what's not ethical and that that makes it a little easier to define ethic ethical <laughs> so i think something that's not ethical making stuff up tricking someone <laughs> copying someone's work plagiarism uh what about what about you guys what do you think is unethical in data visualization harming people mm -hmm. for data viz i think we forget about that sometimes yeah mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know, data has a lot of power to convince, to like sway opinion, to back up, uh, especially to back up beliefs that are already held. So I think like, um, to me, it's really like what, what a, you know, what beliefs or what, um, what are you trying to support with this data because data, you know, it rarely comes in isolation. And so you always have to think not just about like, okay, I got this data from a report and the numbers are accurate, but you have to think about like the greater context of mm -hmm. the topic that you're working on and, and, you know, what's the purpose of this and what is it, what is it telling people? Yeah. And hiding the context. I mean, that's very unethical. You know, you're presenting information without any context to it. People don't um, know what to, how, how to understand it and um, what information they should and shouldn't be taking away from it. I have a couple more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, disrespecting the people that the data is based on, yeah. I think, um, mm -hmm. and potentially, yeah, I think that's a big one. Probably. Yeah, perpetuating Did stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that. Um, and then definitely, like, pushing extremism probably I would say in any mm. direction like any yeah. like you know if it's you know I, I, I guess it's like omitting information too probably because it's usually like one-sided opinions mm -hmm. um but yeah yeah using using I mean it's basically unethical to be like cherry picking data leaving out context to push your agenda right that's that's pretty unethical her harming people so pretty much something that's we want to be ethical in our in our work and a way to describe that I think is just you know treating your fellow humans the way that you would like to be treated, presenting information to them in a way that you would like to be presented information. You know, whether you, you agree with a particular topic or stance or not, you know, you want to be presented information with appropriate context without exaggerating anything. And I think that's, that's what we want to talk about today, maybe some examples and different aspects of ethical, ethical data viz. I yeah. think the... And I was going to say, just to add on to that, because there's, it's definitely like different aspects. And I think you could argue like, 
you know, there's people that would say ethics is like a very narrow definition. And I think we might talk about things that are, you know, you could argue go outside that definition, like just general good practices, like accuracy mm. and, and having your work checked and ensuring, you know, all these things. And so um, just to <laughs> just to be clear, we may discuss things today that like technically go beyond the definition of ethics. And but, you know, I think are related topics. Yeah, so. that is interesting, because it is probably a pretty gray area when mm -hmm. you're like, oh, maybe that's not, maybe that's right. just, it's like, maybe that's just best, best practice yeah. or like, you know, but it, but, it, but it's best it practice all, because it's doing I the mean, right thing. Right. Yeah. Now. Like is an ethical best practice in general. Yeah. It best yeah. practice in terms of you are <laughs> accurately representing things, which I think is, you know, it right. should be included in ethical, but I understand what you're saying. Well, like maybe people think, Hey, that's not ethics. Well, I yeah, mean, like if, if you're you doing to, you things, know, moral philosopher or something they're going to be like well that's not the definition of ethics that's just like you know statistical accuracy or whatever but well, it's like okay yeah but like you know it, yeah. it's all related here right so. i think i think you're right treating people with information treating the people that the data is about and treating people well that you're presenting the information to i think that's what we're talking about yeah. um so i think breaking up um ethics into kind of some main main buckets, maybe like accuracy and honesty, um, maybe privacy and confidentiality, and then also accessibility and inclusion. Those are kind of some main buckets. I know, Gabby, that you have some more, but maybe we can talk a little bit about each one. So like what you were talking about, Will, with the accuracy and honesty, um, there are some things that those, maybe we can touch on some of those best practices for not, uh, presenting data in an inaccurate way a uh, couple things that i can think of off the top you know like um changing the scale on on the y-axis of one of your charts or maybe like being really specific about which axis you choose so that, it, you know, like with a line chart where it looks like it's basically zero and you're like, oh my gosh, look at this, it's tanking. You know? <laughs> really, it's like you look at the axis and it's like, well, that's a hundred, that's not really zero. <laughs> so things like that, where you're changing, changing your axis so that it's looking a certain way when you know that you are making the person, uh, the reader make an assumption about the data, um, when that's really not what the data is showing. So changing changing an axis, I think, I see that all the time, especially on line charts. You're like, wow, that looks like it's going to zero and it's not. <laughs> and sometimes people do it by accident and sometimes that's the default chart. Like Excel will just make it, you know, oh, here's the range of the data. So I'm gonna ba basically make that zero, but it's pretty important to um, understand that people are going to assume that that's going down to zero. So you should probably adjust it a little bit so that it doesn't look like it's going to zero. And um, a rule of thumb that I like to follow, um, Francis Gagnon from v Voila talks about, he wrote a really great article. I'll see if I can link it in the show notes where <clears throat> for something like that, a good rule of thumb is to make sure that maybe a third of the graph is empty um, between the axis and the data. So it doesn't look like that's actually going to zero. You can still see like, okay, that goes down, but because there's that about a third area at the bottom, people aren't immediately going to assume that that's zero. So that's a, a rule of thumb that I like to follow. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to accuracy, I definitely have a lot of, I've, I've learned a lot in the last couple of years working mm -hmm. in news because, um, 
you know, when you're working alone, I think, and also like the, just the variety of sources that we get, the variety of types of data that we get to report on, uh, and then like the heightened importance of accuracy when you're reporting to such a big audience and when you're reporting it on a mm -hmm. news platform, like you're, you're going to hear about it if you're <laughs> right. Like, you know, obviously we all want to be responsible and accurate regardless of how we're working, but there is like a very, you definitely think about it more when you're like, okay, this chart is going out to like a million people and it's present, like it's a representative of this brand. And like, we're giving it authority by putting our voice behind mm -hmm. it and like saying, this is a chart that the news is reporting. And so um, I think some very basic things, like for a lot of people that work on their own or that are kind of, you know, the only person within their company, uh, doing data viz, you might not be having your work checked. Um, just yeah. like editing. I mean, having a second pair of eyes, a third pair of eyes look not just at like the chart, at how you're representing the data, but you know, where did you pull the data from? If you're copying data over or like scraping it from the web, did you do it accurately? Like when we have data that we're pulling from reports and stuff at Axios, like you cannot ship a chart until someone else goes through and looks at every number and make sure you copied it correctly into the spreadsheet. Ah, that's great. Um, that's a great check. Just to make, you know, make sure you're not making typos and things, which mm -hmm. seems like really basic common sense, but like these errors happen pretty frequently. Um, yeah. And so I think really like basic baseline, have your work edited is important. Um, and then beyond that, like, I think you really have to interrogate the data source a lot um, because there's a lot of data out there which um, is either has, I think, an agenda behind it or is just um, like presented in a way that um, it doesn't really have the capability to show what it says that it can mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to be thinking not just like, are these numbers accurate, but are they showing what the source says that they're showing? Right. Um, you know, a couple of like examples of that. Um, it's pretty common, especially like marketing materials or, um, you know, complex topics. They'll publish data, which is like the world's happiest countries or something, right? Or like the, the most dangerous cities in America. Um, and it's just like a list of, you know, like Chicago 98. And then like, it's just like these random numbers and you look mm -hmm. at it and you're like, well, what does that mean? Like, what is, how, what is the, what are these numbers? And then you go down to the bottom and it's like, oh, this is based on our like, you know, city safety index trademark. And then it's like, well, what does that mean? You have to yeah, it's a further. black box. <laughs> right, right. And so you really have to get down. I would say anytime it's like an index, hmm. be very, very you know, um, suspicious of it and like understand what it's saying. Because a lot of times you look at these indexes and it's like, well, we just took three random metrics like carjackings and murders and this, and then like weighted them according to some random numbers that we mm. thought were appropriate. And so, you know, ultimately that doesn't really mean anything. And that, to, you know, to me, that data is meaningless essentially. Mm -hmm. um, can, can you give guidance for, for those that are not so used to establishing how legitimate a source is like could you give mm -hmm. any guidance on at least maybe axios like what's the rule for even like saying like this data is correct not correct like is there yeah. like tenets of like data <laughs> source ethics that you guys use um yeah i mean 
there's a lot of rules. So when it comes to something like that, where it's not like a, a direct metric, it's like, this is a derived metric. You know, we've calculated the safety index or something. So when it comes to something like that, um, it depends on how harmful it could be to people. Mm -hmm. So if it's something like, you know, these are the um, like, most fun airports in the world for something, then we don't really care. You know, that's not going to hurt anybody. And so we'll just, if it's, if we feel like it would help the story to have a chart or the reporter really wants it, we'll say sure, because maybe it's not correct, but it's also not going to hurt anybody. Um, more often than not, what we end up doing is saying, we don't want to turn this into a chart because making it a chart gives it, you know, a level of legitimacy. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we'll say, if you really want to feature this metric, be clear what it is in the story. Say, this is a metric derived from this, developed by this company, and then you can list them in bullet points or whatever, or you can give the highlights just in the text. You can say this thing ranked number one or something. Um, but describing the, describing the data source in your story or whenever you're writing about it is important. Um, <laughs> And then I think some other some other guidance maybe so when you're writing about um, again it's like anything that could be harmful um, or could be uh, incomplete you want to look at what is the data so really really common is stuff like uh, anything relating to like crime um, any kind of survey as well mm -hmm. because survey data is often misrepresented and so mm -hmm. it'll be like um, you know oh. Americans hate um, Joe Biden or whatever, but if, you know, that's not a good way to phrase this chart. Like the way to phrase it is like, you know, percentage of Americans who responded yes to the question, like, do you think Joe Biden is doing an effective job at mm -hmm. XYZ, right? Because you have to be clear about like beliefs versus answers to a specific question. Um, and then you also have to be really, really clear whenever it's um, data that, you know, is not complete. So when I talked about crime, uh, almost all crime data is based on like police reports. Mm -hmm. And so reported you know, crime, <laughs> right. Reported number of sexual assaults uh, reported whatever. and accepted. Let's be mm, very clear. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's reported yeah. and denied by the police. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So in, in general, stuff like that, you know, being uh, being extra, extra careful and accurate whenever it's like a sensitive topic um, and reporting what the data actually says, not what your brain interprets it as. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was rereading um, How Charts Lie by Alberto Cairo. Mm -hmm. And one thing he talks about is, you know, like, you know, you get this data set, right? And it has this index. And what you can do is maybe call up a uh, or email a a uh, researcher or so, an expert in that field and be try to disprove why this index wouldn't work. You know, get some other opinions on, um, you know, where are the holes in this index? Because someone might be like, yeah, the index doesn't make any sense because whatever metric, whatever the one of the metrics in the index is not accurate or it's known to have tons of missing data. You know, like just add, be a reporter, right? <laughs> just try to, try to see if there's some uh, holes in um, how this data was collected and if you can uh, get another expert's opinion about it because yeah we're not experts on everything so you need you need to ask around basically yeah that's a great tip go to the expert mm -hmm. or try to <laughs> let's get another 
um, another take. What about you, Gabby? What do you think? Um, to come back on to sources, and I have pretty strict rule because I don't have, I work as a solopreneur. I don't have like the power of, you know, journal editors to like check data sources for me, that kind of thing, or even get access to private data sets sometimes. Yeah. Um, I have pretty strict rules about what I can use and not. Some of it is like Will says about like, is it a light subject or not? If it's a light subject, I almost don't care. It's more for fun. Mm -hmm. If it's a serious subject, I have a couple of rules, which is no private corporation data. Um, mm -hmm. So unfortunately, you're going to see this even on social subjects that have been created by private organization. And I have a very strong feeling about it. Most of the time, it's going to be biased because it was created in the objective of getting some kind of profit out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I think it relates to the index that Will was talking about. So I tend to be very, to just avoid them altogether. So I rely on institutional sources mainly. So that means obviously the government, of course, you know, think United Nations or like, you know, the Department of, I don't know, uh, Environmental Affairs or something like that. Um, and any also, um, so I'm obviously, because I come from a science uh, background. I'm very familiar with which science paper can be legit. So nature, science, in general, those are pretty reported, stable, peer reviews, you know, articles. They're not perfect. The data set may be sometimes not exactly on point, but most of the time you're pretty sure that it has been peer reviewed by expert. That's what I like. Um, so I'll do that work of like double, like whenever I found a data set or some data or I want to do a subject, I'll, I'll go to those, you know, in those kind of organization first. Um, some other things, obviously, well, just like Will was saying, and I think we even talked about it with like, you know, a good CSV, a good Excel, um, how clean the data sets is and what format can really indicate the quality of it. Mm -hmm. If it's the CSV mm -hmm. screen, it's the methodology. So it's about dirty data, right? Yep. Yeah, so go back to the <laughs> all the former the last episode. But mm -hmm. if if the methodology is documented already, I have a good sense that this yeah. has been done by experts and not some people just doing a random survey. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually, especially in 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 the science field, they will document the flaws of the data. They yeah. would say we haven't collected this. They would say this. I don't know this. If it's on social, you know, in social topics that includes people, they'd be like this specific ethnic groups isn't included in story because it's not statistically relevant. We didn't manage to have enough of them to be representative. They'll explain why this gaps, things missing, or things to pay attention to. Um, so I tend to be very strict about that, and I use mainly those type of data set. That's probably my favorite. And also with time, you build a collection where you know things are legit, verified. Um, and then something I do too is the way science work is by consensus. Uh, obviously, you always have people that are like outside the consensus that happens and they can be right. But overall, if everyone from organization, like public organization, government, science institution, and potentially any community-led organization confirm the same conclusion of the data that is presented from a data source, uh, I can be pretty comfortable presenting it. Because mm. um, I think sometimes, even I think I'm thinking of the example recently, there was a lot of focus, there is a lot of focus in the United States on transgender uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, medical support or not. And without getting into the realm of what is true or not, most of the data you'll see on it 
it talks about like I think an increase of like ten percent, twenty percent. I don't remember some stupid number uh, in the in the number of people um, going through um, transition uh, through with I think medical support. Um, and the thing is, it comes from a very legit institution. Uh, it's a, it's a really good data set, but it's taken out of context completely. So there's no really backing up. Like it, it was made in a science. It was kind of tracked by like a scientific institution, I, I believe. Um, so it's it's good data sets, but like when you look at the landscape of that topic, um, you know, I think we could have been more cautious around. You know, do we even need to pull data out of this because it's not totally confirmed by over the experiences of the people that are impacted by this data set or that are within this data set is presented very differently in reality uh, by like community-led organization. So I think there's a lot that you know that I take into account when it comes to that. Like I'll do a lot more research than you would expect for one single topic. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just on data sources. So I'll stop there for now. <laughs> but that's kind of like the work I do usually before talking about anything. Yeah, and it's important to figure out that your data source is as, as good as you can get because I kind of see it as like um, almost like gossip when you take data that's not, you know, that that well sourced or you don't really know where it's coming from. You're taking it and you're passing it on again. You're it's kind of like gossiping, right? Like you, which is unethical. <laughs> you just <laughs> you're just taking it and you're not checking it and you're just passing it along for more people to consume. Whether it's right or not, I don't care. I I, I did the chart, right? <clears throat> yeah, one thing also Gabby reminded me of with the corporation data, another source to be very um it's not always wrong, but to be very skeptical of is consulting firm data. So mm. when you see like, you know, McKinsey report on whatever, whatever, like that may be great, you, but you have to really look at their sources and see like, who is this report made for? We'll what get into the, trouble for saying that. <laughs> what is the purpose of it? So, you know, yeah, be, um, just think... be a little bit skeptical and make sure you're giving a very close look um, to those kinds of sources. Yeah, I should have added, there's a rule for me, and that actually includes even scientific education, is who's funding the project. Hmm. I think you get a lot of answers out of that, because sometimes some organizations look very legit, and I won't name things, but they even call like something, something institution. Um, let's say, for instance, in the green climate space, um, and they, when you look at it, you feel like it's like an environmental institution that does legit collection of data and produce reports. And when you look at the funding, it's going to be from main fossil fuel producer. So you can start asking questions there on like, what are the real motives? Um, not that we want to give them that they're trying to do something bad, but it's just like, it puts a bias on how even like what data is collected, what is it for, and the public, and obviously the communication and the, you know, the bias that the people who created the data had in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, finance is pretty important. Um, you can, usually it's going to be indicated for most corporations in their like about page because they have to put their partners in. Hmm. Uh, for nonprofit, they have to legally disclose them. So you can look it up, at least in the US. So you can look it up and see who funds, who funds those people who gave them money. And you can have an idea on like, you know, if they're leaning one or another, or if there's like a really big corporation that's pushing something like one big, big funder, you might start to add. Yeah, this discussion is also just reminding me that um, there is just a lot of gray area and a lot of decisions that you have to make and you might not be 100% correct and how important it is to do your best and just realize that you are by 
being always skeptical and try, you know, getting experience, you are building your intuition about these kinds of things. And that's something that I'm learning a lot when um, I just started as a data literacy trainer with data literacy. And we talk a lot about, you know, there's an analytical side of data and there's also an intuition side of data. It's really important to um, hone your intuition on that stuff. And you do it by having a lot of experience in a particular field, asking people, working with people, you know, being humble about your work and asking for feedback because you learn that way and you can hone your intuition. So um, I, I find that that's, that's a really important aspect that we don't talk about a lot because, you know, being ethical, there is a lot of gray, <laughs> squishy area and it's hard to navigate, especially as someone new to the field. I love that you're making that point because obviously it's something you build with time, which is why I always kind of warn newcomers, people who just started to do database, to use um, data sets that are from people, about people, to just make portfolio cases, no. like mm -hmm. pieces. Um, we've seen it during COVID, it's been kind of you know, because it was a data set and it was available, people went all crazy and in a lot right. of COVID data charts just for the practice of it and published that. And I found that problematic. I think we need to all in the field be a little more careful about, you know, data sets when you think about it are a, at least the one that I made about people. And I would even argue that some of it that is kind of like about people, but like in the second degree. Yeah. Um, it seems like everything's about people, right? Unless you're yeah, talking about lot. space, maybe planets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I just think like it's not a toy. It's not. It's, it's, it's um. In a way, it belongs to someone. It belongs mm. to the person you talk about. And 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 there's a big argument against like maybe we shouldn't visualize everything, anything at all time. Like yeah. maybe we need to be a little more careful. Not to say you shouldn't talk about this, uh, but I think a lot of really well-meaning database practitioner have created charts at the beginning of COVID specifically that are I would consider very harmful. Mm -hmm. um, to people that were impacted by COVID at the time, now, and even later in the future. Um, so let's just be careful and let's just ask ourselves every time before even starting or before even answering a question that we have and looking for data, like, is it worth it? Could this be misinterpreted? Could this be harmful to someone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I like doing portfolio stuff maybe about, I know you like doing this well, like um, data that you collected or stuff about yourself, you know, because you can be sure, you know, <laughs> collecting data about yourself, you're not, you're not harming anybody else when you're visualizing that. So that's great portfolio work. Um, and that was something I was thinking a lot about at the beginning when we started Elevate, we did a challenge um, where I got a data set and people were creating visualizations about it. And it was really hard for me to find a data set because I wanted it to be accurate. But I, you know, these people are practicing with this and they're going to post it publicly. So I didn't want to accidentally like make someone step in it by <laughs> giving them bad data. And I ended up getting data from NASA about, um, you know, trips to the moon and trips to um, outer space because I felt like that was a very well-sourced data set. It was a huge data set. And it was from a reputable um, institution. And, you know, it, if you mis accidentally misrepresent something because you're practicing about going to Mars, you know, that's probably not going to hurt anybody. <laughs> Can I add a resource for people who are like yeah. have questions on this? Um, there is this very great um, new, I don't know how to call it, um, but it's, 
the Maori data sovereignty principles mm -hmm. and they kind of state why it's important for them to have data, what are the principles for them to use the data about Maori people. It's from Maori people. It's been worked on with collaboration with government, but it's very interesting because it does give you a sense of like also, you know, what happens when a community that sometimes may have had data about them in a certain way decide that, you know, it's theirs um, mm. and, and maybe you can't just use it the way you want, whether it's for fun or by the government or to make analysis. Um, they talk about in the culture about how like um, the Maori view on data is as a living taonga, which I believe is is treasure. And that has a lot of values to them. So they put a lot of like principle on how you can use it. It's all, you can only use it, for instance, I believe if you are connected to the community, like you have to ask the expert within the Maori community, mm. like, can I use that? Is this done properly? Like there's a lot of principles that they work through. Um, and with respect and it's really interesting so if you're interested in like i kind of have a view on like data sovereignty principles around why it's important this um and i can put some link but those articles and the principle and the whole document is very interesting to read even for me who's a bit more familiar with with that topic um they have a lot of things that i haven't even thought of mm -hmm. um so yeah so just just putting that out there that it exists this idea of like there are people behind they they have a sense of like how they want the, the down themselves to be collected and used. Mm. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, it might be very different in opinion as the diverse practitioner is about how we should use those data. Yeah, if we were like, <laughs> it's out there, so it's ours, right? <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you drop a link in there, that would be great because I would love to read that. Yeah, that's a very good point because, again, I think it is, like, I didn't consider that because I also have this science background and, like, this is such a huge topic. I mean, there's people that just study this topic uh, and it's currently, like, really, really hotly debated within the scientific community. Cause um, like my husband, for example, is a geneticist. And so this is probably one of the most contentious and like mm. uh, hottest debated issues in the genetics community. Because when you're talking about data in that community, it's not just like, you know, statistics about people, it's literally their genetic code that's collected mm. from them, right? You're talking about DNA samples. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of discussion about like, should any of that data even leave places? You know, should you be able to go to another country and collect DNA and bring it back to your country and analyze yeah. it? Um, hmm. And some places don't allow that. They do this more like the Maori thing. Like, you know, a good example is India. Like India has very strict uh, data sovereignty laws about genetic data. And so, um, you know, they have rules that genetic data on Indian people must stay in the country. It cannot leave like even computers. It can't be transferred into the cloud. It can't be transferred into, uh, you know, trans like portable uh, data storage devices. It has to remain on physical storage in the country and it can only be analyzed by Indian people. Uh, wow. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. Has, is there anything else, Will, that you have noticed um, in terms of getting data sets and creating graphics for the news in terms of conf confidentiality or like having mm -hmm. to aggregate up some uh, data mm -hmm. enough so that it's not quite so individualized? <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think it's something that, you know, you always want to be looking out for. To be honest, I haven't come up against scenarios like that, but it certainly could happen. Um, and I mean, again, like the example that I would give is also from genetics, because I mean, I talk about this issue a lot with my husband, because he's working on data. And, you know, with genetic data, you, there's a lot of rules about, um, you know, 
this push and pull between open data principles, wanting to share the data and make it, you know, your methodology is transparent and all of that, but then wanting to give privacy to individuals. And so, mm. um, you know, in that case, like they've actually developed, uh, people are working on this all the time, uh, algorithms to try to obscure the data and have it in such a way that um, basically your data is, um, is like encrypted, but can still be used to replicate the analysis that you um, performed. Oh, that's um, interesting. So yeah, there are ways to do that. Um, it's not always possible, actually. Um, most encryption methods can be decrypted. And so keep that in mind if you think like, oh, you know, I have this data that's really sensitive and it's about individuals, but I'll just like scramble it up a little bit. Like I'll just shift a couple of the rows around and, mm. and that'll be enough. People won't be able to figure it out. Um, don't take that lightly. I guess that would be my advice. And so if you have data where you know, like this contains personally identifiable information, um, you know, this is individual level data, don't assume that like uh, your own naive methods can be enough to uh, to fool people because mm. if people are determined, um, there's all there's actually almost no way to completely anonymize data um, unless you remove uh, just remove those identifiable aspects. Right. Yeah. It also kind of makes me think about how people could how you could end up with dirty data because people were maybe altering or leaving out some of their data because they didn't want to be able to be um, mm -hmm. identified. I'm thinking like of the Data Visualization Society survey, you know, you're mm -hmm. putting in there, it's great. You're putting in there a lot of, you can put in a lot of information about yourself. Like I'm female in the DC area and this is how much money I make. And this is how many years of experience. And since the field isn't very big, <laughs> right? people could like find some very specific information about me. So there was some information that I left off because it's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to like completely tell everything about myself and have people yeah. be able to have so much information about me. And, you know, then when someone is visualizing this data, they might have incomplete data. I didn't put anything in there fake, but I could imagine someone could put like, hey, I am just going to be from a different city so nobody can personally identify me. And then now your data visualization is off. So I don't know. Those mm -hmm. are things that you should probably think about. I can give you a very concrete example. Mm -hmm. My partner is mixed. He has like three different ethnicity and he mm -hmm. refused to check those boxes. Um, because for him, it's like, I don't know what they're going to do with my data. I don't want to be identified, obviously, because yeah. of his ethnicity. He's afraid of, you know, whatever the government could be doing with this mm -hmm. kind of information. So he almost systematically refused to fill those boxes, including at the medical office, even though that could be very relevant to yeah. any onset, because for him, it's it's associated with de potential danger. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, let's... And I, to be fair, there's a whole questioning around, do we even need to collect this type of information in any context mm -hmm. um and is it worth presenting in that optics of you know separated by groups um whether it's right. ethnicity, gender sexual preferences um just just thinking out loud but you know there's a lot of question around even if let's say you're given a survey result and you you roll as a let's say independent designer a data designer is to you know create a lot of data viz, helping them to report and you do the whole kind of like analysis not fully in depth but some kind of analysis and they're like you know we could present all this and, and they like insist on we absolutely want to show this disaggregated app by gender for public communication and you're like maybe not you know mm -hmm. you can be resistant like there can be a lot of resistance and like you're like why you like you this is why it's important to have some kind of knowledge even in survey of 
you know, you only ask if people were male or female. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, maybe there's a bias there. You know, like I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like even if you even add like things already, like nomenclature around gender, for instance, of like women, men. I don't think people agree as a whole on who who exactly are women. Like, mm -hmm. how do people identify? Definition. Mm -hmm. So even, even the way you formulate the question, the words that we use can be very harmful to the person that, you know, have filled up that questionnaire. And that also means that when we get it, if we ask to do it, there might be some issues uh, around that. Um, I have a good example, if you want, on like how to do, how to handle this kind of yeah. like data. But I work with... Um, I think they're called Project Inclusion. I forgot now. It's been a minute. Um, <laughs> I'll find it. But um, they were really great. They had a data analysis and a person who specialized into that kind of like formulation on the survey around typically was more on gender, on gender. So they they had, you know, they had asked question, do you identify as? And they had a list of them. And it was like, you know, you didn't have to check one. It was like you could check all of them if you wanted to. You could check. They had so much information, including mm -hmm. nomenclature that I've never heard of. So um, I think the indigenous community has a different name for transgender than transgender. Um, so to make sure it was inclusive, because they were so connected to that, I think they like added all those names and there was so much and they were very careful about how they presented that information. So that's highly representative. So they would add, maybe add, there was a lot of notes at the bottom of a chart and they would say specifically, not just like women, you know, women or men or whatever, they would be like those people identify as cisgender, woman, and whatever, whatever, whatever. Like it was very, very clear. And I could probably dig out if you give me five minutes, I'll dig out the exact formulation. <laughs> um, I'll look for it because I think I'll look for the link because I think it's a great example of how you can do it right and it's done, but you can still present the data. It's made a very specific concept, but the formulation of the term on how they collected it and how they presented it, including the database by adding notes, which we usually hate, but it was it was really impressive. And I think it was very caring mm -hmm. to, to, to do it that way. So yeah. I'll look for the links so that you guys can, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to talk about that because I think this is a really good subject. I think a couple of the things that Gabby said, one of them I was going to say is about like, um, the topic of like not answering the question on the form or whatever that's a good thing to keep in mind is that again biases in your data like be aware that anything anyone who's from a marginalized or like discriminated against group is going to be less likely to identify as something on mm -hmm. a form and so be aware of that bias um you know i think like a classic example is anything to do with um lgbtq people you know, especially since that is, you know, sometimes something that you can hide that's not like publicly visible, maybe you're not out. Um, and so when you look at these charts that are like, oh, percentage of, you know, people among this age group that identify as gay or lesbian or whatever, those are almost always undercounts, right? And you have to be aware that like, this is not a, you know, this is not an accurate number, right? It's just, again, it's people who like are open and identified as this um, in this survey, so. Yeah, and felt um, safe putting it on that form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Um, and then I think the thing about like, you know, wording and terminology, it's, I will just put this out there that it's so, so hard. Like this is probably one of the most difficult things we deal with at Axios because, um, you know, the classic examples like race, ethnicity data, um, because it's never the same, right? So you get 10 surveys or 10 data sets and they're going to list 
they're going to list the breakdown of which race ethnicity categories in you know 10 different ways none of them are going to be the same there's no standardized um accepted format for this um you know some of them might say just latino people some of them might break it up into hispanic latino non-white hispanic you know all these categories some of them might include latinx um, some of them might say afro-latino um and so uh, the only method I can suggest or um, advice that I can give is that accept that it will be a little bit messy at times. Like, don't be too obsessed with having like the super clean chart. Oh, I'm going to take these four data sets and I'm going to make my own decisions about how to combine these categories and make it all line up and make sense so that my chart looks nicer. Like, there's a lot of, <laughs> there can be an urge to do that because you yeah. can be like, well, I don't want to have like, you know, 14 categories, or couldn't I just combine these two and lump like Pacific Islanders into Asians and that that would be okay, right? Like that'll work, or I can just put these into another category. Um, that's a thing people do, but um, do not do that. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, don't try to like do your own analysis where you make decisions about combining those categories and stuff. And when it comes to the wording, um, even if it's not consistent, our policy is just to use whatever the exact uh, wording and definition that the data source used. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so in one chart, we might say Latino, in another one, it might say Hispanic slash Latino, in another one, it might say Latinx, and we don't make any kind of decision about harmonizing those labels. We just use the exact definition the survey used mm. uh, or the data source used. And if it is confusing, or if we think there's like something you know, a little bit weird about it. Like Gabby said, we'll put that in the notes. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And we're talking a lot about the data part, but you know, then there's ethical considerations in the visualization part. Yeah. Um, recently, Cindy Schoen and Eli Holder did a great article. I'll drop it in the chat about how visualizing um, social inequality could actually make it worse because like, for instance, with a bar chart, right? People just see where that bar ends. So then they just assume, oh, okay, everybody of this ethnicity might be, it has to be at this point, but it doesn't show that there's actually a pretty wide distribution and, you know, there's some high, there's some low. Uh, so I just dropped that in the chat. It's a really great article about how you visualize things. You, you need to try to visualize it in an ethical manner as well. Can, can we talk in more details I mean, I don't want to explain Eli's work, but I do think that it's like a, a really important step forward in the database community, like all the work he's been doing and he'll produce more soon. So yeah. go follow Eli Holder. Um, <laughs> also, we have a, we had a guest speaker. Eli was a guest speaker. That's uh, true. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, on, um, on Elevate too. Yeah. So he did a great presentation on that. Yeah. Too. So he explained how if you use a bar chart instead of a, you know, how do you call them? B charts, for instance? Yeah, like B swarm. You put, yeah, you put all the dots. Uh, you're hiding, you're simplifying and stereotyping people pretty much. Like you, you remove the diversity of, of, you know, the actual data. And that can be very problematic, especially if you look at, for instance, his most example of ethnic groups. So there's like black, white comparison and it reinforces an ideas. Um, and just to be very clear, this is something that database people work on all the time, like ethnic group disaggregated data and showing differences and how like that can actually reinforce stereotypes rather than improve awareness around a problem, mm -hmm. um, especially because of 
some deficiency we have as human beings, we tend to do what we call victim blaming. I'm gonna, I'm trying to use like normal word and not like social science word here, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, you, it tends to push people into like victim blaming. So instead of seeing like, oh, you know, like let's say, let's say the bar charts, it looks like, you know, I don't know, success in education, whatever, like black people are a little lower than like white people. People are gonna think like, well, they're just dumb and they can't do school, which is not at all the conclusion of the data set. It's not what it's showing. And you emphasize it, you, promoting and making it worse by making the data viz in the first place and also not disaggregating the data because if you were you would see that the dots actually of course that's the average and there may be a difference there mm -hmm. disparity but you know if you spread it out it's, it's a range it's a range um mm -hmm. what's happening also, with the people at the bottom of the range like what's what are some other variables that are affecting those people exactly and then there's this whole concept about like context around mm. wide disparity but i think the main thing with Eli's thing is really sure like there is a range for everything and we hide it we make it so much worse because we stereotype things we put people into boxes and also i think it opens the question of like do we need to represent any of that um, yeah <laughs> yeah i was gonna yeah, say that, that we, <laughs> the, the, the context thing is so important mm -hmm. and like that's something we think about all the time when we're doing stuff for the news is the question we always ask ourselves is like, if I'm going to make this chart and put it in a story, you know, maybe if I'm writing this, I'm really conscientious. And so I'm going to explain in detail, you know, all the caveats and the greater context and why this is happening or whatever. But what happens when some, you know, like racist person on Twitter screenshots it and then puts it on their forum, their like white supremacist forum and is like, look, you know, black people are stupider than white people. They have lower educational attainment or whatever. Right. And so you always have to be, what we're always thinking is like, how could someone take this out of context? And again, it's because the chart gives it that legitimacy. So then you have this like chart, which is like branded Axios and it's like, data. data. Mm -hmm. yeah, it looks like this is accurate. This is facts, you know, and it's, it could push, their agenda or some, you know, very harmful agenda, depending how they choose to take that and represent it. And now you've, you know, unintentionally helped to support that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it comes down to also like practical data. So there's obviously, do we need to do it? Can it be harmful? Can it be misinterpreted? It also puts a lot of weight on how we labeling charts. I know there's a big push sometimes on neutrality on labels, like saying things like, you know, percentage of people, I don't know, passing stat exam. Like that's how it's defined and then that's it. But that removes any context, you know, on, on the database that could be additional context that could help people understand and not make their own conclusion. So again, it's really hard to find that balance between showing neutral, like neutralizing the data in a way and also like making sure that the, uh, the conclusion from people is the right one. Um, and like recently, so the example on the transgender data and like like increase of transgender transitioning, um, for instance, was taken out of context because of course it had increased by 20%. But when you look at the number, it's like 3,455 people to 3,522. Mm -hmm. It was something ridiculous in terms of raw numbers. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give that context, people are like, well, that's crazy. Especially yeah. if you have millions of people in the world. If you have a preemptive bias against transgender or against transitioning, like that's going to like make you freak out where there's nothing in terms of raw numbers. It's like 10 people. It's nothing to be freaked out about. And you can add contextual data around like, why this is happening, you know, what does that mean for people if you want to? Uh, but also it was taken out of context and it was weaponized very clearly. Yeah, and I think that's a, 
because sometimes you can do those things um, and don't realize, like you might put the percentage there. And it's like, yeah, okay, there's the percentage. Um, that's why I think testing your visualization, there's always great, great reasons to test your visualizations. But one of them is that people don't take um, assumptions or take conclusions that you don't want them to. So, tw you know, ask someone, you know, what do you think of this chart? And they might be like 20%. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. And then um, you'd be like, oh, well, actually, you know, I don't want them to have that, uh, that reaction because it's not actually true. Let me just add this piece of context. So sometimes testing your visualization can help you not do those things. So I guess if we had to clarify testing, I would, I tend to think of it and I've learned my lesson. I've made harmful data is like, yeah. I have. Yeah, we, all, we all have. Yeah, that's how Just we developed our intuition, yeah. right? Like Developing have, our intuition. I've had yeah. mistakes. Like, um, and so I think today, of course, I'm way, way more wary of creating any. It's interesting because it completely changed for me, in my opinion on that. But like, I make way less awareness charts type of thing because I just found them really problematic and really hard to handle and make it properly. And if I'm going to have to do that, including with a client, we can all ask to be put in touch, check with somebody in our entourage that is probably the person that the data is about. Hmm. So if you talk about like ethnicity, nothing prevents you to find somebody who is the right ethnicity or couple because it has to be representative. At least and like ask like, are you comfortable with this? Do you feel like that represented you in the wrong way? Because they are the owners of that data and it, it may feel wrong to them somehow mm -hmm. obviously we can ask 2000 people every time we do some work but specifically when it's a context of work where you have a client that potentially in this that space like a non-profit they have community they in touch with the community yeah. so you can ask for that contact you can ask for somebody who is in touch being like is this am i representing this correctly am i being inclusive enough am i being representative and also can they just be harmful in your opinion to the community uh, even if it's made with the best intention or at least it's been you know ordered in the best intention and that's why you got hired maybe the answer is no and then you have to cancel the project like it happens you know or maybe yeah. it's been improved and I think we overestimate how many testers we need. You know, we think, like you said, we need 2,000 people to test this to get something statistically significant. No, I mean, if you only have access to one person, asking that one person is way better than asking zero, right? <laughs> so you don't feel, don't feel like you, it's like zero or 100. You know, try to, try to get a few people to look at it. Maybe in the last few minutes, we should touch a little bit on accessibility too, because I want to, I know a few minutes isn't <laughs> doing it justice, but I do feel like, maybe accessibility in data visualization, people might not consider that an ethical issue. Um, but I think of it as, I mean, if you are, I'm, you know, you're trying to do your best in being a good friend to your fellow human, then presenting them with a visual that they either physically can't read because they have some sort of disability or cognitive um, uh, disability, it's, that's not being a good friend. So thinking about ways that you can uh, alter your visualization either with colorblindness or, you know, doing alt text, you know, like all those things that you can do around accessibility. I consider that we should start moving to consider that as an ethical consideration. Why would it not be? Like, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of people think accessibility stuff is like extra. Like yeah, <laughs> don't, don't you agree? True. Yeah, you know? no, that's true. I think it's like the that's true. Thing yeah. you do. Or you check the box because the client in the contract put WCAG at 2.0 and like, yeah, oh, because we have to be or whatever. I mean, I think thinking of it as I'm being a good friend and making this as into I think it's even more than that. When is the last time as a designer that you got to actually improve people's experience, thousands of people's experience in your life? 
when 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 would you ever be able to do that as a designer like we rarely get that opportunity of change people's life and i really mean it like it's i think i think i i ran the number recently it was like 10 percent colorblindness plus if you put all disabilities like 30 percent oh yeah it's a world, lot like yep 10 percent of people are going to be able to visual like see your work not have to scroll past it because somehow. it had no alt text or something i mean imagine mm -hmm. the the scale of your impact right there by just bothering to mm -hmm. do accessibility checks yep yeah, I think, I don't know, my two cents on accessibility is always that it's more complicated than you think. So I think a lot of people learn about, you know, some sort of intro things to accessibility. And then they think of it like you said, like a checkbox, you know, like, okay, now I have made this accessible, like rubber stamp. Um, but just to be clear, like, you're never going to get there. Like, there is no accessibility is like, it's a spectrum, it's a progression, there's trade offs on either end, even when you're choosing to make something accessible to one group of people that might be making it less accessible to another group. And so there's no like platonic ideal of like, I have now achieved peak accessibility. Um, and so think of it more like, um, you know, more like a, an integral part of what you're doing and you're considering at each phase, you know, who is using this and uh, and what are the trade-offs and how am I trying to do better for different people? Mm -hmm. um, and going along with that, I think, is relying less on metrics and relying more on user testing and just talking to people. You know, the thing that everyone will bring up um, sort of in a, sometimes in a very like militant way is like the, you know, WCAG, 2.0 guidelines or whatever, right? Like this doesn't pass the contrast. It's, you know, it's only 2.4 instead of whatever. And the truth is like those guidelines are developed based on uh, surveys that were done in like the 1930s from like 14 people who were like all white men. And they just asked them like, is this perceivable? Like, is this enough contrast to you? So, you know, the, the, the numbers that make those up, um, are not sufficient to just be like, therefore I have done it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Can we, so on callers, because I think that's one of the big issues in the database, there's way more, but on callers, um, I just want to recommend a resource for everyone, um, which is the data wrapper article written by Lisa Charlotte Murph, who highlights the issue with WCAG 2.0 guidelines. Mm -hmm. And she recommends, which I really like, the APCA, which I've been using now for like two years, even though it's not legal. It'll be actually integrated in a 3.0, just so you know, guys. Oh, um, yeah. So uh, potentially some of it. Um, so I would I would recommend, and we'll put the link, but if you're interested in that, you should, as a database person, I think it's really obvious. There's like some things that are obviously wrong with the colors of WCAG estimation and, and you know, the checks. So APCA is great for that. So you can... We'll put the link there so that you can read about it. And one of the tools I use to that is way easier because I think there's a lot of like how much work. There's no platform yet that I found easy to create accessible colors mm. palette and and then check on that. Uh, one of the tools that I really like is called Contrast Tool. It's literally Contrast dot tools, and we'll put it in there uh, and in the resource. Um, and it gives you exactly font size for, for colors and you can use the font size of like oh, yeah. the unit for pixel pretty much for any element. It's super easy to follow for the APC. Mm. It's like the most easier thing to do ever. Um, so I would recommend that. Um, and yeah, we should, I think it's just like, I just want to also, I understand how we hear a lot of accessibility and I think it's so much harder 
not just because it's never perfect, but because there's not that many tools that make our life easier around it. And for designers, it feels like like a weight on their shoulder to, to do that. So we'll try to give you some resources in the, you know, in the link on YouTube to help you out with, with that. Um, but just think about it, make it a mandatory step, at least to think about it. Yeah. I think my, my point to people is always, um, you gain so, so much accessibility. Like probably the best thing you can do for almost any visualization you make is have really, really good descriptive text about it. Um, mm -hmm. and, text that is descriptive in an accessible way. So text that is available to a screen reader. Um, and that doesn't necessarily just mean like the alt text tag on that only describes your chart. It means, you know, that, but also all the text that surrounds it, the article that it's within, um, you know, text, uh, text is, is probably the most universally accessible thing if it's, you know, presented in a correct way, in a correct format. Mm -hmm. Um, so. Do you have resources on that somewhere that we can put in? <laughs> Probably, yes. No, that, I, I mean, also, I think also Data Wrapper, again, Lisa um, <laughs> over at Data Wrapper wrote a really... Um, Go read all it, Lisa's articles. Yes, do yeah, yourself no, a was favor. It, um, was it her who wrote, the, who wrote the alt text article? No, it was... Um, oh, Amy Cecil. I think Amy yes. wrote, yeah, yes. Amy Cecil. Yes, Amy. That's a great, that's a great yeah. article just for that bit, the alt text bit. Um, so definitely that's my number one recommendation for data viz alt text. Yes. So that was our our few minutes of accessibility. Accessibility is an ethical issue. And I again, yes. I just like to think about it, you know, being a, you're just trying to be a good friend. We know it's a lot of work. And you've like we've talked about for the past hour, like there's a lot of work that goes up front, uh, starting at the data to the visual. And then like a lot of the accessibility things, people think of the like last mile, like, OK, let me double check the colors and um, add the alt text and all that stuff. And it can feel like it's it's a lot extra. But you know, like Gabby said, there's a huge audience that you can be um, reaching that you can't couldn't reach before. And, you know, you just try to be a good friend to those people. So uh, I hope that was a useful discussion about ethics and data viz for you. Thanks for joining us today. And if you have any follow-up questions, you want to get a list of all these resources, you can join our Elevate Data viz community at elevatedataviz.com. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.